Nyata, hello. It's Alison here from a church in southwest Victoria called Sanctuary. I wonder, what would you spend a year's wages on? A house deposit? A fancy car? A university education? How about some fabulously expensive perfume for a man about to die? In today's story, that's exactly what Mary does. Jesus is visiting Mary, Martha and their brother Lazarus, whom he'd recently raised out of the corpses, or out of death. While the men are reclining at the table, Mary brings in an eye-wateringly expensive jar of perfume, and she uses it to anoint Jesus. And then, in the Gospel according to John, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. The other Gospel writers tell us that the disciples are shocked. But here, only Judas speaks out, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, he asks. For the cost of the perfume was 300 times a day's wage. In Australia today, perhaps $50,000, perhaps more. Well, the writer goes on to explain that Judas said this because he was a thief. He wanted the money so he could steal more from the common purse. But I reckon Judas gets a bum rap here. He's just asking the questions that the other disciples ask in Matthew's account and Mark's account. And he's asking the question that most of us would ask here and now. Fifty grand. That would go a long way in a homeless shelter or with a family of asylum seekers. It would feed the hungry, heal the sick, educate the young, plant a small forest. How on earth could it be okay for someone to spend so much on a single symbolic act? Well, I don't think we can come close to understanding unless we take a step back. In the previous chapter, we were told that Lazarus was ill. Word was sent to Jesus, but although he loved the family dearly, he stayed where he was for a few days more. And in his absence, Lazarus died. Now for Mary and Martha, this meant absolute disaster. In that time and place, without a brother and without husbands, they had no way to live. No income, no access to the workforce, no social security, nothing. When Jesus finally travelled to Bethany, He was met by Martha, Mary's sister. And Martha said to Jesus, If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Well, they talked, and then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who trust me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and trusts me will never die. Do you trust me? And Martha, who had nursed her brother on his sickbed and had watched him die and her future die with him, looked at Jesus and said, Yes, Lord, I trust you. And then Jesus called Lazarus out of death and into new life. In today's story, Jesus is back in Bethany, where Lazarus is hosting a dinner on Jesus' behalf. And I'm not sure about you, but leaving love aside, if my main source of income had died, and if a friend had turned up a few days later, walked with me to the local funeral parlour, and brought him home alive and well, 
able to recline at table and host a feast. And if that also meant that I wouldn't be forced into prostitution as the only way to survive, well, I'd be pretty damn grateful. In fact, I can't think of what I wouldn't offer in Thanksgiving. A car, a house, a bottle of $50,000 perfume wouldn't begin to express my gratitude at having his life back and with it my own. Jesus gave Mary her life back and her extravagant response makes perfect sense. But the anointing at Bethany is not just a story about something that happened to other people long ago. It's also a story for us. A story about the effect that following Jesus can have on our lives, here and now. Yet for many of us who've grown up in the church, and perhaps who've been harmed by religious professionals and institutions, it can be difficult to see how following Jesus actually gives us life let alone the sort of life that leads to the overwhelming gratitude we see in Mary. When was the last time you were so grateful that you poured a year's wages into the body of Christ, whether into the church or into blankets or bread, or even a month? Mary's level of gratitude is indeed very rare. More easily, I think, for us as readers, we recognise ourselves in Judas. Like him, we are followers of Jesus. We read the scriptures, we listen to his teachings, we know that Jesus cares about the poor and that his followers care about the poor also. And we know that it is outrageous to squander so much money on a single extravagance. We know that the money could have been put to much more sensible uses, which would still have served Jesus, but in practical ways. And like Judas, we can see that Mary's act was not only extravagant, it was shockingly sensual. If I knelt down during a service and washed some bloke's feet with my hair, I'd be hauled before the professional standards board. So in Judas' complaint, I hear our fear of sensuality and sexuality which pervades the church. Mary's act is so intimate and so utterly outrageous that Judas cannot even name it, let alone criticise it. Instead, he focuses on the money. Poor Judas. He knows all about Jesus, and he knows that followers of Jesus care for the poor. And yet, after all this time, he still doesn't really know Jesus. And it's in this lack of knowing that his death lies. Judas may be eating and drinking, walking and talking, even spouting scripture, but he is dead on his feet. In the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now the word translated here as know can be a trap for us, because in our culture we equate knowing with information. 
And so if we've memorized our Bible stories and listened to the right sermons and learned the right theology, we think we know Jesus Christ. But there are other ways of knowing. Both in Hebrew and English, knowing can refer to sexual intimacy, to a form of communion that is beyond words. And the word can also be translated as experience. So in his letter to the Philippians, Paul is saying that he longs for intimate communion with Christ. He's not saying that he needs to learn the right things. He's already told us that he has the right knowledge. He's the perfect Pharisee. He'd memorize the law and he'd carried it out. But Paul wants more. He wants to experience Christ so that he might also experience the resurrection from the dead. He's not seeking eternal life here, some magical insurance policy that means he will never die. Instead, he's seeking a radical coming alive, an awakening from the sleepwalking existence that is normal life. He wants to wake up from the existence which does the right thing and spouts the right theology, yet never falls in love with God and with all that God loves in this world. Awakening out of this existence and into full and abundant life and love. This is what Paul longs for. And it's this form of knowing, this form of coming alive that Mary displays. She's not speaking the right words. She's not committing to daily quiet time. She's not doing the correct expressions of religious observance. And her outrageous actions, letting her hair down in public, leaning over Jesus' reclining body with her breasts gently swaying caressing the feet of her guest. Her actions make it clear that she doesn't think much of polite society. But she loves Jesus, and she knows him right down to his toenails, which she is gently stroking with her hair. She has already experienced him as the source of abundant life, and she's so grateful that she pours out everything into him, her costly perfume, the last shreds of her dignity, and her tender caresses. And she can afford to, because in God's economy, the economy that Mary already knows and already lives in, there is always more than enough. The sower doesn't just sprinkle a few seeds on the most fertile soil. Instead, he throws handfuls of seed everywhere, even among the weeds and on the stony path. And the teacher doesn't send the crowd away to buy their own food. Instead, she organises an impromptu picnic for thousands and feeds the birds with the leftovers. And the perfume which was poured out on Jesus wafts sweetly through the centuries anointing people and communities so that the poor are fed. In God's economy, even the dead are brought to life and sit in communion at the table. And it's because of this abundance, this never-ending supply of God's extravagant and eternal generosity, that we are raised out of death and into God's life. A life of gratitude, of loving, of belonging. 
a life of wholeheartedly participating in God's passionate concern for the world. Mary experiences this abundance, and in response she gives up her fortune and her dignity. The Apostle Paul yearns for it, and in his letter to the Philippians he writes that for the sake of Christ he has gladly lost everything. Isaac Watts knows it, and in his classic hymn declares that were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so I wonder, would you offer up the whole realm of nature? Would you spend a year's wages? Would you bow down and caress the cracked and smelly feet of Jesus? How do you express your gratitude? To the source of all life, all love, all integrity, all hope. And what will you now give? That's it for today, but there's always more to read on our website at sanctuarybaptist.org. Sanctuary is funded entirely by members and supporters, and if you'd like to support the work of this little church, you can make a donation via PayPal, and you'll find the details for this on the website. This recording was made on the lands of the Peakwarung peoples of the Eastern Ma Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. This morning, three sulphur-crested cockatoos were breakfasting on treats hooked out from the courtyard gutter. The dusky pink coria from Childers Cove is flowering, and today we are waiting for the rain. The peace of the land be with us all. Amen.